morning. Welcome to Kesed. If you are new, I want to welcome you. My name is Danny, and I'm one of the pastors that I have the privilege of being a part of this church. I'm sharing with you today and, uh, and for a few weeks coming on, continuing to share. And so uh, thank you for being here. I recognize church, if, if this is your first time, uh, can be kind of a messy space. And uh, it comes with a lot of baggage usually or uh, with a lot of at least preconceived ideas or, or old conceived ideas. Uh, and, and we're hoping to be a, a space for people that can come and explore all of that, can talk about that, can, can, uh, can, can engage with that, and so on. Uh, let me also say, I'm doing the best I can to make these intros fresh and different every time because literally I had one of my elders, Jason, he's up in the balcony, quote it back to me. He said, every single time you start, you say the same thing. And he told me every single thing I said, and it's 100% true. Uh, so I'm trying to come up with new verbiage because Jason's here, and I'm trying to get it to be a little bit fresher, you know, and, uh, but, but listen, I'm doing the best I can, okay? So if you're new, we know church is hard. Sometimes it's difficult. Jason, that's the best I got. I can't, I can't do it. I can't do it different. Uh, listen, we're in a shame series right now, so uh, we're, 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 we're talking about hard stuff. We're talking about real stuff. Um, and today that's going to continue on. And so uh, I, I'm, I'm grateful that you're here. I'm grateful somehow we've been growing through the shame series. It's almost like God's like, hey, talk about stuff I want to do in people's hearts and I'll prompt people to, to show up. So um, my hope is that you're here like I am to, uh, to engage with some of this stuff inside our stories that, that it's hard to deal with, that's hard to talk about. And so uh, I, I, I'm just, I'm just going to encourage you to, uh, to walk it out vulnerably and to, uh, to be willing to make sure and make today uh, about you, not about your neighbor or your spouse or someone else, but just make it about you, and, uh, and we'll see what the Holy Spirit wants to do with it. Amen? Amen. Let me give us a quick recap on our working definition of shame and a little bit about what we talked about last week. Shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love, belonging, and connection. We talk uh, about how shame is a universal feeling, that, that my job up here is not to convince you that you've experienced shame. If you don't know you've experienced shame, then you probably have a lot of emotional health work to, uh, to do because it's universal and uh, everybody has to face it. Last weekend, we talked about facing the cycle of shame within all of our stories, how uh, you may be in a season where you don't really think about it much, but it will come back, or you may be in a season where it's all you think about, and chances are it will uh, get easier, but no matter what, shame usually cycles within our story, and our goal is to reach freedom from that cycle. We talked about how Jesus proves he's the way to that freedom, the new and better word, that he's the work that's been done for us, but that we have to participate ourselves in the journey that he is inviting us on. Uh, shame is, is, is just heavy, and, and it's not normally something you would talk about in a kind of a corporate setting, but but for this series to work, that's what we're all going to have to do. Talk and think about it in a setting alongside, alongside other people who are, who are dealing with the same thing. This week, this week, after two weeks of talking about it, is going to be our first week that we are going to take our first steps out from where we are. Uh, out from answering those questions that God asked Adam and Eve. Where are you? Where are you right now with this topic? What are you hiding? What are you numbing? What are you keeping kind of compartmentalized? And who told you you had to be stuck there? Whether it's, an, whether it's the spiritual enemy, whether it's, it's an old church system, whether it's a, a person in your life, or whether it's you yourself, who told you that you had to be stuck there? Because I'm promising you this, it's not God. God did not tell you you're stuck there, and God is not a person who pours on shame upon his people. So today we're going to step out of that. We're going to take just a few steps out to somewhere other than where you are. Somewhere other than comfortable and somewhere other than easy. I chose the word other because I don't know where you are, therefore I don't know where you'll end up at the end of the service. I just know that Jesus wants to move with you from where you are, from that cycle, from that stuck place to somewhere other. And he promises he will be there to hold us. Now, I was pondering how to do this, how to take the first steps out. Because the first week we kind of summited shame. We, we, we walked it up to the top of the, of the ridge and we looked at over the valley. And the next week we sort of evaluated, okay, what's with us and, and what's this journey going to look like? And this week we're actually going to move down into it. And I wanted to make sure and prompt us 
to, uh, to do it the right way. So I had a few different clever ways I could do this. The first one was I could bring up someone who has faced and overcome great amounts of shame in their lives. And I could let them share with you their story. I could show a motivational video that encapsulates what overcoming shame should feel like. I can buy those for about $14.95. Be the cheapest way to, to get us all motivated and excited. Or I could do a many, myriad of many other creative things from a drama to a dance to a heartfelt special to anything else that would probably, I hope, break you open so that you could evaluate this journey that you need to take with shame. And I had a bunch of these on paper and I had a bunch of these processed with my team and I kept continuing to, to, to try and come up with something that would unlock us. And then I realized that the Holy Spirit didn't want any of that stuff. Instead, all that he wanted was for somebody to go first and that somebody is gonna be me. I'm gonna speak about some realities around my own shame cycle today and how it has affected my story over the years. I'm gonna be as vulnerable as I possibly can be and, uh, and as authentic as uh, the Holy Spirit's demanding, which I wish was a little less than, than what he's asked me to share. But I have two requests for you as, you as you watch or as you listen online. The first one is try and remain with me. Don't check out when it gets too hard. Don't say to yourself, I feel really bad for him. I can't watch this. I'm not looking for your pity, and that's not what this is about. So try and remain. We often underestimate how much power there is in just remaining with someone. So don't leave mentally. Try and stay and just, just let it be what it is. The second one is don't just be an observer of me and my shame cycle. Allow it to be something that echoes through your own story and experiences. You may watch from where you are, but watch with personal application in mind. Side note, this is also how you should read and study scripture. If you want the Bible to come alive to you, don't just be an observer thousands of years later watching other people make mistakes you never would. Instead, read and so watch with a personal application in mind. Let it, let it apply to your life. So, now that that's all cleared up, now that you've agreed to, to try and remain with me, and now that you've agreed to not just be an observer, uh, let's talk about me. When I started in full-time vocational ministry, I was 21 years old. Uh, I was asked to come on board uh, at a local church that was starting up. Uh, I knew everybody there had been attending since it started, and they needed someone to help out in their junior high youth group. And so I did. And I shared with those junior high boys from the bottom of my heart why God mattered to me. The first week I spoke, uh, it was just a testimony day. And then the next week was a little more testimony, and the next week a little more testimony. And every week they kept bringing friends until the group was, was double or triple the size it was the month earlier. I thought this was really exciting until I realized that I only had so much testimony. And then I thought to myself after about the fourth or fifth week, I'm probably going to have to teach them something else. I guess I'll teach the Bible. The problem was I had never taught the Bible. I had read it many times. I loved it. I grew up in church, even a dysfunctional church. But the Bible was still very bright to me. And I enjoyed that. And I remember thinking in my head that, wonder if I can teach the Bible how I enjoy reading the Bible, which is basically to bring it to life with wonder and color. And so the first story I chose to teach from the Bible was my favorite story in the Bible at that time, and it was the story of the prophet Elijah. Elijah is known as the greatest of the spoken prophets. And from the first time I understood that, I connected with this person. Because of all the siblings in our home, I was also known as the greatest of the spoken children. <clears throat> I was the one who would stand before the, the children. I had four siblings, and I would discuss why chores seemed ludicrous and why we needed to go to bed later during summer. And I would give essays and, and spoken words around different things that needed to change about our family. I never got anywhere, but I did get okay sharing my thoughts and opinions. And Elijah was that same way. He had zeal. And although he was a man of God, he had sarcasm. My favorite Elijah story is when he confronts 450 prophets false prophets, and what I used to teach my youth students in this first sermon, and I called it the prophet off. <laughs> it, was, it was way cooler back then, okay? It was... 
<laughs> Sorry, I didn't hit as good now. I was 21. At this point in the narrative of God's people, when Elijah is about to do this, they have once again found themselves in bondage. They are stuck under the governance of King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. They have begun to forget the God of their ancestors and instead follow the false God known as Baal. Because of this, God has brought upon them a great famine in the land. A little more context about uh, about these people at this time. Generations before, these same people, the Israelite people, had been in bondage, physical bondage, as a slave nation to the Egyptian people. This lasted for hundreds of years until God brought a mighty man by the name of Moses to free them. And Moses was known as the greatest of the written prophets. Moses freed these people by performing, through God's power, mighty miracles. These miracles not only convinced Pharaoh to let God's people go, but also convinced the very nation of Israel that God was who he said he was. And this resulted in people of Israel following God's man out of bondage and into a place of wonderful reliance upon God, who then led them through the desert of Sinai and into freedom. This was Uh, uh, This is a famous story now, the story of Moses, but this would have been an incredible story then. Fresher, uh, probably more detail, and Elijah would have known all about it. He also knows that he is now the man God has chosen to break the bondage that has returned to lay claim to God's people. And just like Moses, he knows that he will do this by performing, through God's power, mighty miracles. We join the story at the beginning of Elijah's prophet off. Elijah says, now therefore send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab, the king, sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 400 and mighty men. And then he defines the rules of the contest. Verse 23, let two bulls be given to us and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first. For you are many, and call upon the name of your God. But, he reminds them, put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given to them, and they prepared it, and called upon the name of Baal. From morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered, and they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, like a good quality man of God does. (laughs) He was mocking them by saying, cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself. (laughs) Maybe your God is going poo-poo right now, and that's why he can't come down and help you. (laughs) Or maybe he's on a journey, or maybe he's asleep and must be awakened. You can pick up the edge of this guy, right? And you know when whoever is writing this is like, I just don't feel like this is scripture, but okay, this is, God uses all kinds. And it says, they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Now, since the first time I read this story with the context in mind that I've explained of how I liked it, I have wanted to experience a moment like the one that happens next. When Elijah's turn comes about and he steps forward, it's some of my opinion, some of the most legit scripture in all the Bible. Verse 30, then Elijah said to the people, and it's just this phrase, come near to me. And it's a lot of people, folks, that would have had to get up, pull up their blankets because they'd been there all day, and shift closer around the mountaintop for what was about to happen. 
And all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about the altar. What? There's no trench on the other people's, but Elijah's like, let's dig ourselves a trench. We're going to get this, making it dramatic. And as, and as great as wood contained two sayas of seed, that's how much trench he built. And he put the wood in order and cut the bowl in pieces and laid it on the wood. And then he says, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And everybody's looking around with every jar of water. They're going like, this guy's crazy. That wood will never light now. And then he looks around and he says, do it a second time. <gasps> the crowd says. You got to hear it, right? You got to see it. People are like, what is he doing? Do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And then he said, do it a third time. <gasps> what? This is crazy. You can't put all these, this water and wood and stone and, and this is crazy. What are you doing? Do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with, with water. Verse 36, I'm going to tell you this exactly how when I first connected with the story when I was 11, how I read it and how I still believe was given to me by the Holy Spirit as it actually happened. It says, and at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near. I think he came so near to the offering that when the fire that you're about to see falls, it went around him, right? That he was so close and so near to the offering that he was like, God, I know you're going to do it. So let's just put on a little show. I'll stand so close that when it's done, right, no one will be able to see me. They'll look back and then they'll see that I'm there. So he comes near. Oh, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O oh Lord, answer me that this people may know that you, O oh Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. I love, love, love that he prays a prayer that God will be the one who turns their heart back. Not him. It's God's fire. It's God's glory. It's his heart, his posture. Everything about this is like, if you want to be zealous for God, if you just want to be on fire for God, like Elijah is going to almost be here in a moment, if you just want to light up your life for God, just give God glory after glory after glory after glory. This is where people go wrong, my opinion, whether it's Household people are just people in their faith. They just start dipping in just a little bit to a few of spoonfuls of God's glory. And they start saying, can you believe God uses me to do this? Can you believe God does this? And Elijah doesn't do that. He's like, God, you're the one who turns hearts. You're the one who changes people's lives. You're the one who can take mistakes that have been made, worshiping false gods. Apply that to whatever area in your life, wherever you've been getting power from. And Elijah says, God, show them through power. So this is my prayer here today. For this service more than any other service, my prayer is as we go on in this story, that God's power and God's fire and God's purpose would pour into this room and burn away everything else but him. He says, answer me, Lord. You have turned their hearts back. Verse 38. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed. Listen closely. The burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord is God. And as the fire cleared, they looked up. Elijah came walking out with nothing but his beard smoking, kind of glowing with embers, right? And he was like, the Lord is here. That's when I was 11. That's how that went down. And then I remember when I was 11 thinking, oh, shoot. It just got real because the next verse says, and then Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. And then they seized them. And then Elijah brought them down to the brook of Kishon and slaughtered them there. Sermon over. Excited you guys are here. Feel free to give in the back if you have any questions. Like this is an incredible story. And then remember the famine that God had brought? Once the, the prophets are dead, the people have proclaimed God is good. Elijah's beard is about four inches shorter, but cut by fire perfectly into a brand new shape. <laughs> Elijah literally walks up to the king and says this. This is the very next verse. I'm not skipping around. This is how you close a message, by the way. If you want to be just like, like, a, like at a prophet off, this is when you, this is a drop the mic miracle. He says to Ahab, go up, eat and drink. For there is a sound of the rushing of rain. And boom, the famine was over. 
Probably because the mountain was still on fire from Lord. So the fire is raging. The prophets are dead. Elijah's beard is shorter. People are like, this is amazing. And all of a sudden, rain comes that hasn't been seen in years, puts out the mountain fire, drenches the smoke, and Elijah just walks off down a charcoal path of his own making. Mm. I wanted to be this. I still, I still want to be this. He's done it. He's been obedient. He held the wonders of God before God's people just like Moses. And now, like the people before who were in bondage in Egypt, these people now can believe that God is who he says he is and that Elijah is God's man. I wanted this in my life badly. And I grabbed hold of that vision. For many years, uh, I wanted nothing but fierceness in every conversation for Jesus. As I said, I was zealous and I was good at it. And it cost a lot. We hear stories like this and they're bright and they're shiny and they're beautiful. And we use them to kind of prop up people, people like me, to say, live your life like this. For me, it was easier than most. I've shared before that I was a childhood cancer survivor. I'm a Dornbecker kid. So I was very sick from very young till 13 or 14 years old. And if I learned nothing during that time that got woven into my story, it's that I was chosen. Because a lot of my friends, they, they didn't make it. And so I felt like I was chosen. This meant I had a responsibility to make sure I lived up to the gift that had been given to me. I've shared before that it was like I had like Saving Private Ryan syndrome where he's standing with his family at the gravestone at the end of the movie. And he's like, I hope I lived a life worthy of your sacrifice. I felt like if I was going to be a child that lived, then I needed to make sure and, and go out into the world to face the world. And I didn't care what it cost. This is just part of what made me who I was. And so this is tool number one when it comes to facing your shame. And this, is applied, this applies to every single person here. Own what you brought with you. Every person in this room has a story woven within their story that most likely you are still playing out in your life right now. And I can tell you this. If you aren't working your story, then I guarantee your story is working you. If you're like, ah, I don't know, that stuff's behind me, past is in the past. I love that the past is in the past, and the past loves for you to think it's all in the past, especially when you keep numbing that one thing over and over and over to keep yourself enough clear-headed to not focus on the past. Sometimes you got to stop and you got to evaluate, and you got to be honest about what you brought with you. Watch as Elijah's story reaches forward from his past, from what's woven within himself, this man who just experienced this great power of God and works him into a place he probably never thought he was. Very next verse, verse 1, chapter 19. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. So Ahab goes home, the king, and tells the queen, and now he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. She threatens him in a letter. She says, I'm going to end you like you ended my prophets. Verse 3, then he was afraid. What? And he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. Something is clearly wrong in Elijah's story that, a, that this queen has spoken into. Because if you have the power of God flowing through you like that, I've preached this story 25 times. I've never understood why Elijah just didn't get the letter. Go, oh, the queen's threatening me. Dear Lord, Father of all, wherever the queen is, just bring fire down upon her face right now. Thank you, Father. <laughs> Off in the distance, just a little tiny. It's over. We're back in church. He doesn't do that. Why? Because she spoke to something inside her story. Something changed. What is Elijah afraid of? I'll tell you what changed. 
His story got pulled around a sharp corner he didn't see coming with that letter. And what the letter proved to him is that his plan didn't work how, it, how he wanted it to because the queen represented the leadership of the nation. And the letter represented the response of the nation, meaning the people didn't repent like they were supposed to. They stayed the same. They aren't free from their bondage. And as Elijah read the letter, he's saying to himself, I have failed. See, Elijah had a vision for how his life was going to be. And I'm sure he told everybody with that talented mouth of his how his life was going to be. But this failure meant that the person he thought he was, along with the responsibility he thought he had, wasn't true as he knew it. He was going to be Moses of the time. He was going to lead God's people into repentance. And he does this amazing thing. And the people say no. And the leadership says no. Confession. I used to worship God's church more than God himself. But it didn't start out that way. I loved God who he was and who he called me to be. And then somewhere along the way, I lost my path and began to live out my unique chosenness instead of the childlike identity we all carry with the Lord. And slowly, after year after year after year, my world started falling apart. My marriage, my family, the church I was a part of, All of it. The problem with this is that it didn't fit well into my plans for me. I was chosen. I lived. Which meant that I was going to be fierce and zealous for God. And I wasn't just going to burn the problems God had problems with or or deal with people in a certain way. I was going to burn them, the stone, the wood, the, the trench, the water, everything. Because I was chosen which meant my marriage needed to look a certain way, but it didn't. And my family needed to look a certain way, but it didn't. And my children needed to look a certain way, but they don't. Everybody with adult children just went, (laughs) yes, yes. We all understand. Just quick thing, if you're raising little kids, enjoy the stress, right, and the tension of being like, I just need to get their grades up from a C to an, e, to an A. Because when they're adult children, all you're trying to figure out is, but how many months in jail do they have to spend? That, I just, like, how many months? Those are the levels you start thinking about. It's crazy. None of my kids have been in jail. But, that, but the illustration fits well, right? I was chosen and I wanted it to fit a certain way and it just didn't happen. So I pretended for many years that it wasn't true, rarely honoring the pain I was causing those around me. And just like Elijah, when I, when I got that proverbial letter that meant I wasn't who I thought I was, I ran. Not to God, of course, but further into and after the imaginary person I hoped I was. Eventually, all this running made me very angry, made me an angry husband, an angry father, and an angry friend, and a very angry follower of God because he had let me down. It took me years to come to that difficult truth and a whole lot of therapy for me to work out of it, along with a whole bunch of prayer and seeking. Tool number two, name your feelings. I told you I was angry. I was prideful. Name your feelings. Feel them and name them what they are. Stop pulling your punches from yourself. Be honest about the things in your life that stir you, especially the things in your life that stir you and you're just not sure why. Here's how Elijah does it. He does a great job of naming his feelings. He runs out into the desert Verse 4, chapter 19, it says, But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree and listened to this man's plea to God and confession of what he feels. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. First, to people who've experienced suicidal feelings, to people who've experienced 
um, overwhelming, overwhelming, an overwhelming sense to not exist and be here. One of the shame cycles, the, probably the, one of the most severe shame cycles, is the one where you face something that you don't know how to deal with and it drives you to the point that you don't want to exist. And so you feel shame about the thing you don't know how to deal with. And then you feel even more shame about the fact you didn't want to exist. And then it just cycles between the two. And it's hard to get out of because what are you going to do? Tell all the people who rely on you and who love you that you went through this mental headspace? Yes. The right people. We're going to have a week on telling the right people. But Elijah himself, prophet of God, fire from heaven, stones, wood, trench, water, bringer, destroyer. Even he himself gets to a place where he steps out into this authentic uh, vulnerability with God and says, God, I don't want to exist. And look why. Because I am no better than my father's. He's not afraid of the queen. He's not afraid of the king. He's not afraid of somebody coming after his life. He's afraid of not being the person that he thought he was, that God isn't going to use him the same way he was going to use his forefather Moses. And he feels like a complete and utter failure. It's important to be honest with God about the lies we believe, even if the lives we believe are about him. C.S. Lewis, uh, after his uh, wife died, I think it's in his book, A Grief Observed, said this, I was not in danger of not believing in God. I was in danger of believing terrible things about my God. Whether you've ever thought about it this articulately or not, I've got a strong guess that we've all found ourselves out under a broom tree somewhere quietly cursing the one we feel made us so messy. Broom trees are lame trees, by the way, to try to get shade from. This is what a broom tree looks like. <laughs> uh, Potter, Pastor Potter, Chris Potter and I, who's at Columbia, they preaching the same message. He goes, isn't it interesting that Elijah's trying to escape the shadow of Moses and then goes and falls under this lame tree and is like, I don't care anymore, God, about anything. And God's like, yeah, listen, this isn't about shadow chasing this is about you and I having relationship. Uh, Dr. Kip, our, uh, our resident psych, uh, psychologist, pastor on staff, when I was talking about this, sent me an email and he said, one of the enemy's most insidious deceptions is that he whispers to us in our own voice using I along with the condemnation. I'm never going to be good enough. I'm pathetic. I'm worthless. I have nothing to offer. Combined with our own damning thoughts, shame gets embedded twice as fast and as deep until, like Elijah, we find ourselves drying up from the inside out beneath something we're hoping shades us that does a really poor job of it. But God knows this. He knows, and he shows up just at the right time. Remember, Elijah's in the desert. I want to die. Don't want to be here. Clearly, I'm not good as Moses. I'm an utter failure, and he goes to sleep. Next verse says, and behold, an angel touched him and said to him, arise and eat. And he looked and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank, look at the last line, and laid down again. Listen, whenever shame has you spinning and you feel as if everything in your life is falling to pieces, you should take this biblical advice from this verse. Eat a snack and take a nap. This is what he does. God shows up and he meets his felt needs. He helps him emotionally regulate. He helps him care for what's present and current. Sometimes people don't emotionally regulate. They don't exercise enough. They don't eat well. They don't sit with someone they can trust and actually get some of this stuff out. They don't face it at all. And so they just numb, 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 numb all around these broom trees in their life that don't provide shade and it causes them to just dry up from the inside out. And sometimes you just got to stop. You got to take a walk, have a snack, take a nap, reset just a little bit. Because the angel comes back and does it again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. This angel that brought uh, bread and water both times, that word uh, is the word uh, 
Malak, and it's, uh, it means messenger. And what's so profound about that word and how God faces down our shame is that it's the same exact word used earlier in the text when Jezebel sent her messenger with the letter to threaten Elijah. Her messenger came to say that you're going to die, that because of your choices, because of your decisions, I'm going to wipe you from the face of the earth because that's the message that shame always brings. But God's messenger was sent to tell him to eat, drink, take a nap, rest, because the journey that's out before you will be one that's too long without me to take you on. Just like we mentioned last week, the voice of God and the message of God will always speak life into our dry bones. Always. Lastly, notice that once God restores him, he gets to make a choice about where to go next. God doesn't say where to go next. God simply says, go out to the mountain. Also notice that God is implying that without my strength, where we're going to go next is going to be too difficult for you. Some of you in this room, you're still up on the ridge. You haven't even taken the first few steps to come down and walk into this space to address your shame. And a big reason why is because you want to know where the journey ends. You want to know who you're going to be next. You want to know all the different things that keep you in control. And the one who can make sure that, you know, there's trenches and stone and wood and a bull. Because when God comes to remove my shame, I want to make sure people know it, you know, and know it's God. But really, it's just a sense of control. And Elijah, in this place right here, God's just like, hey, you got a journey ahead of you. I'm going to go with you. And where you go other than here, without me, you can't make it. We cannot face shame without God. There's no amount of psychology. There's no amount of, 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 of exercise. There's no amount of any of it. Those are great first steps and things that help us to self-regulate. Those are important things. But God is still answering the same question. Where are you and who told you? And the, he wants to journey with you to redefine and answer those questions for you. He wants to journey with me out into that space. And I'm just going to be honest, I don't want to go. I've had to, I, I preached this on Thursday and it was a hot mess. And I told some people, this will be the service, that, in my opinion, that, that will be the most difficult because I am this service. We are church people, most of us. That's why we go to the early service. Because once you go to church after a while, you're like, listen, go early. You have all the rest of the day to do what you want. <laughs> it has nothing to do with what service the Lord calls us to. It has to do with us making sure we get it checked off. So we can go do whatever we want. We're church people. We know the game and we play it better than everybody else. Thursday, that's not even a weekend. How is that Sabbath? <laughs> I got your email. I get it. By the way, Sabbath is on Saturday technically. But anyways, it doesn't matter. But, but we get it. And that's why we are probably the ones that have to lead this journey for our church more than anyone else. If there is a group of people inside the Kesed community that need to step forward first for the other people inside the Kesed community to step forward first, it is the people who understand church, church hurt, church pain, and all of the difficulties that come with that. They should be the people who understand shame, forgiveness, redemption, restoration. It's supposed to be us. And yet, many times I find that this service, like me, is actually the service that goes least. Because we understand the game and how to play it. That's why I think God let Elijah choose where he wants to go next. Filled up on his presence. Let's go, Elijah. Let's walk it out. But where you're going is going to be too hard without me. And that's all Elijah needed to know was that where he's going, God would go. So why is he going to the mountain? What does he find there? What happens with him, God, and shame all end up in the same space? Well, you're going to have to find out next week. This is the first part one I've ever done of this, but as I built this message, I realized I was building both this one and the one from next week. And I think there's something really important and special about leaving us out in the other place with God's presence, pondering this week what it is we are going to face with him, but more importantly, that we're going to travel with him no matter what. That's my last tool. Carefully consider your choices. They're yours to make. God wants to fill you. He wants to walk with you. He wants to restore. He wants to create softness in your eyes and your heart. He wants more for your life than what you have now, even if your life looks really, really pretty on the outside. 
Deuteronomy 4.29 says, But from there you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. I am currently in a time of careful choosing myself. Who will I be at the end of the series? What will I hold true about myself? And where is the voice of shame drowning out the voice of the Spirit in my life? And so what I want to do is offer you a time of choosing. And this service, more than any others, is going to have the hardest time actually making this choice. But here's the truth. Some of you in this room, you need to make an actual physical choice. And so what we're going to do is we're going to have the team come out, the worship team. We're going to play a song over this room. And for folks that are, that are watching online. And then we're going to have pastors and prayer people down front. And what this is supposed to represent is, is some of us needing to actually take a physical step, step out into the other. And so if you're in this room and you know that you need to take this symbolic step out, then I'm going to challenge you to come down. I'm going to challenge you to, to make it something different than it ever has been before. And I'm going to ask that God does with you something powerful in your heart right now. So will you bow your heads? Will you start by owning what you brought with you? Whatever that is, whatever it it could be. Will you name the feelings that you feel right now? whether they're apprehension, nervousness, or pride. Will you carefully consider your choices as you self-regulate, as you consider stepping forward, out, and into this new life that God has brought you? Lord, we just ask that more than anything else, this place would be a sacred place that this would be at the place of other. We ask God that you would reach down into the seats that we're sitting in and remind us that, that this journey is too much without you. And so Lord, where we are right now, may we just ask you to go with us as we take those first few steps out of shame, out of its cycle, out of its grasp to be the fathers and the mothers and the sons and the daughters and the co-workers and the children and the young people you've called us to be. We lift this time and space to you now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We'll have pastors, prayer team people. I'll be down here, so if you want to come down, please do. Yes, I surrender 
together. Like a rushing wind. Come on. Breathe us, breathe away. Lord, have your way. Lord, have your way in me. Invite him in this morning. Come on. Like a mighty storm. So for those of you that want to come forward, there's more pastors up here. There's more of our prayer team up here for you guys to receive prayer or just to talk about something. We want to know that you have permission to come up here, but you also have permission to leave if you need to head out and grab your kids. But we're going we're gonna to keep this space just like this, okay? We're going to keep playing a little bit. So feel free. You are released to go if you need to, but also know that you can come forward still, okay? God, I surrender everything I have. 
for this moment. Thank you for this place. God, we know that you're moving here. You're moving in this moment and in this room. But Father, we know that you're going to continue to move in our hearts and our lives as we walk out of this building today. So God, I just pray for every person that's been here, for their hearts and their minds to find you this week. God, we surrender everything. We give you our lives. We trust you. We love you. Thank you for meeting us here in this place. We love you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You guys are released or dismissed, but again, feel free. If you still need prayer, we're going to be here for a little while, okay? You're welcome. And we hope to see you guys next week.